0: Father now we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace on us and uh, that you woke us up to enjoy you and to hear your word and to talk about uh, uh, theology and, and servants uh, through the past that have loved you with their minds and their, their pen. And uh, we thank you for our brother John and how you bless us through him. Help us to grasp from his life and work uh, what you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Apologize, the word got cut off on his, uh, <clears throat> his motto. Talon's personal motto was, My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. So the word sincerely got chopped off. So, <clears throat> Which sounds really like, that's pretty passionate, pretty heart, heartfelt. Some people think he was a little grumpy. But he had a lot of health problems, so he spent a lot of his life running to the bathroom. So maybe that's why he looked a little preoccupied <laughs> <coughs> when he was hanging out with people. <laughs> so preaching and running to the bathroom was kind of consumed his mind a lot. Oh, I see. He
1: will <coughs> suffer of IBS. Yeah, he had IBS. So.
0: <coughs> Some people say that drove his theology, but we'll talk about that <laughs> in a minute. <coughs> so what have you guys heard about John Calvin? And we'll we'll go through and Talk about is it true? When people say John Calvin, what's kind of the original gut reaction of people? Bert. The Reformation. Okay, so yeah, he's a reformer. He's kind of legendary, but sometimes for things he actually didn't believe or did or stuff. So John Calvin, you hear the name, what are you supposed to? Dude, when you hear that?
1: <clears throat> a lot of people, they just like, hear the name and they like, turn in disgust.
0: Yeah, why are they disgusted?
1: <clears throat> uh, well, they think he invented Calvinism and they see it as a mean theology. Oh, okay. So, he's
0: in a mean theology. <clears throat> and what's mean that he taught, do they think?
1: Stuff that people like, like predestination. Yeah.
0: They think he invented predestination. He invented Calvinism. Does it set the record straight? He did burn a heretic, but he actually wanted to. Uh, hang him instead so (laughs) the gang wanted to burn him because that sent just a I guess harsher message so uh, (laughs) he actually was begging for mercy but uh, that's one of those things we talked about last week is we judge people by our generation's standards and a post-reformation post-enlightenment post-christian environment so basically um What Calvin was up against in the instance of this guy named Servetus was he was a heretic. He went around denying the Trinity and denying uh, salvation uh, by faith. And then he shows up in your city-state, Geneva, where Calvin ministered, was like its own country, essentially, with walls and and government and stuff like that. So this guy shows up and says, nanny, 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 you can't catch me. So it would be the equivalent of a terrorist showing up. Interpol gives us a call. Hey, there's a terrorist in your town. Grab him. So Calvin is basically bound as a Christian and as part of the government of the city to grab this guy, put him to trial, and and this is obviously a capital offense in post-Reformation Europe. Quote-unquote, he had to. Whether we agree with it, whether we think he should have just put him in jail and had a prison ministry... To Servetus, yeah. um, that just wasn't really one of the options, historically speaking. So it's kind of like, maybe we go, yeah, that was unfortunate. We don't like our dude having that on his record, you know. But we have to deal with that, you know, historically that that was what he was up against. So you might hear about that as he loved burning heretics. To correct the record, he did not love burning heretics. Um, he would rather write to them and argue with them through letters than have him killed. So uh, that's kind of, um, <clears throat> he's known for his awesome beard. So actually this picture doesn't do full credit to his, mm-hmm. the awesomeness. Um, just thinks easy top. Um, that's, that's what he looked like. Um, <clears throat> I was watching them last night, so that kind of stuck with me. Um, another thing you find if you actually read his commentaries, Um, is that it'll just kind of sort of have dot, 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 and then it says, let's pray. And it'll actually have a prayer that he literally prayed. So he would preach twice uh, Sunday, kind of do in the morning would be kind of an exposition of Scripture, verse by verse. And then at night would be kind of like catechism class. And a lot of Dutch uh, Reformed churches do that still. And then uh, during the weekday, like Tuesdays and Thursdays, Like brown bag lunch, people would come and bring their brown bags and listen to Calvin uh, teach the scriptures. So he would teach maybe like an Old Testament uh, book during the week, and he would teach maybe a New Testament on a Sunday morning, something like that. So So is he
1: kind of like the preeminent teacher?
0: Yeah, so he's like biblical theologian par excellence. People say even if you hate Calvinism, you have to read Calvin's commentaries because he dealt with all the issues... And he dealt with the Hebrew and Greek. He just dealt with everything. So even if you didn't don't like him, he's done his homework, and you should listen to what he he has worked through. So sometimes literally you'll see dot 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 in in the commentaries. And it will be because he had had migraines so severely that he wouldn't even be able to see his notes or see his Bible to keep talking. So he would have to just go go lie down in a dark room. And so this man was deeply devoted to the scriptures. Even on his deathbed he's like trying to finish commentaries. He didn't get all the books of the Bible uh, done. So he just really wanted to be used up in God's service so that God's people could read God's Word. Really a perfect kind of Companion to last week. Um, and, and that's what brings us to kind of the real uh, John Calvin. Uh, well, let me just talk about this last point. One of the modern biographies uh, by, uh, the last name is Buma. He says the the whole reason that uh, Calvin was so into predestination and a really ex- sovereign, powerful God is that he was such a fearful person, literally racked with irritable bowel syndrome. So he he paints this picture of a guy cowering in fear in a porta potty, you know, <laughs> trying to find some tools to, like, hold on to his sanity and hold on to life. And so John Calvin, quote-unquote, invents God's sovereignty and predestination to kind of make a more secure world for his own mental mental health. The only problem with that is... Well, number one, we we a lot of times have biographical reasons for how we settle on theology. We should think about that. Some of the best examples of that are like Pelagius and Augustine. Augustine was a hard partier who had really run from God and rebelled against God. And so his doctrine of grace is, is really deep and awesome because he sees how God has grasped him and brought him out of his sin. Pelagius is a monk who's like a chaplain... To rich old ladies. So his theology of grace is going to be, God loves you and He loves good people and He helps make good people better people. That's kind of Pelagius's view of grace and sin, and so we need to think about that. But that doesn't discount Calvin's biblical teaching. And actually, Paul didn't invent predestination because it's in the Old Testament, and uh, and Paul says predestination goes into eternity past and so this isn't an invention of, of Calvin um, this is why we call it reform is that the reformers were bringing us back to what was what was biblical and so really the reformers through their scholarship and their advocacy are really trying, trying to um, you can think of it kind of like a garment we could call this New Testament Old Testament Uh, biblical theology and last week we talked about quote-unquote Roman Catholic Church really doesn't kind of pop up until between 500 and the year 1000 where kind of papal power really solidifies so really we have this period of 1000 to 1500 where there's a lot of reform movements up and down but it's a mixed bag there's a lot of corruption and confusion So, what the reformers are trying to do is they're trying to maybe slice out the rotten part. Like, sometimes you have a really awesome, like, peach. It's like, well, there's this rotten part. Do I chuck the whole thing? Some of you are really averse to germs and stuff. You're like, chuck it. It's gross. It's disgusting. Um, but just imagine how expensive fruit would be in medieval. You're just like, we just slice the rotten part off, right? So, the reformers really slice out this part. And then we want to restitch these pieces together so that we have the seamless garment of biblical truth. We're trying to recover, not just throw away. And so a lot of people think reformers are just about chucking stuff. And so a group um, who just chucks everything but doesn't try to recover anything, those are called the radical reformers. If you read Calvin, he will talk about them in terms, he will call them the. Anabaptists. (laughs) Anabaptists. <laughs> Anabaptists, which these were people who re baptized Catholics. So these two branches of these people are what probably today uh, Mennonites and Baptists of all stripes. <clears throat> So, these were what are called the radical reformers. And then there were some really radical people, and we would just call them heretics. <clears throat> there were some real nut jobs, kind of militia, like religious terrorists and stuff. So, he kind of attacks them too. So, there's kind of violent heretics, and then there's kind of annoying heretics called the Socinians. And these are like your modern-day Unitarians who don't believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he's interacting with... uh, Calvin's interacting with all of these people, along with Roman Catholics. But a lot of times he's dealing with these guys, people on the Reformation side, who just aren't being biblical. They're just going way too far and way too fanatical. They're not really being uh, scriptural. They're being reactionary. And so he's really calling people back to... Let's read our Bibles and let's see what God's doing in the Old and New Testament. Let's be biblical theologians. And a lot of these uh, crazy, crazier sides are more on, on um, we would see elements of charismatic movement about new revelations and visions and God told me to burn down the city, stuff like that. Um, not that our charismatic friends today are into that, but it has that flavor of God delivered this message and we've got to obey it. Kind of like a David Koresh uh, feel to it. So uh, so he's dealing with all this stuff and trying to call people back to just a simple, some would even say boring, dependence on scripture. Because the way he preached and the way he was taught is, what's the next verse? That's what we pick up with next Sunday is is the next verse like we do on Sunday morning. And so um, that is so good and so healthy and so rooted in uh, the story of scripture It gets us off some of the wacky reactionary stuff any questions about that just kind of as a
1: the a reformation <clears throat> is Calvin uh, post Martin Luther or pre- yeah
0: Calvin was born uh, nine years before uh, reformation day so he's basically growing up in a reformation Reformed world environment um, and he lives in France he's French and eventually he ends up in Switzerland because of a friend of his uh, named William Farrell who basically kind of guilts him into uh, coming to work in, uh, in Switzerland his friend says buddy it's God's will for you to come help me plant this church over here <laughs> And then he says, "What do I say to that? I guess I go." and uh, <laughs> so he has kind of a mystical streak to him too. He's like, "Well, I guess God needs me and and that's what I'm here for. isn't just for my comfort I'm here to to serve God with my gifts. And so you can kind of see how these relationships and things kind of work to bring him uh, to, uh, to Geneva. Jay's so born in 1509. The Reformation starts in 1517 uh, with uh, martin luther's 95 theses and he only lives to the ripe old age of 55 uh, just because of his health problems Uh, he's a very weak man but uh, mighty in uh, teaching uh, the scriptures one of the neat things about geneva was literally they would pray for students at the end of these lectures and they say we will not see these brothers except in heaven because they're going to the mission field. And so they would send them uh, to South America to plant churches mm-hmm. and be missionaries. And so people who say Calvinists aren't evangelistic or gospel driven, that's a bunch of bunk. Because basically, these students of his who loved the scriptures in the Academy of Geneva were literally given their lives for the gospel. And even in Europe, to be uh, in certain parts, to be a reformation christian a biblical christian literally was to give your life uh for christ and so this wasn't just kind of like us having our libraries having our websites having our blogs it's all kind of safe and we just kind of kill people with words uh you could literally die for uh believing biblical theology uh all over the world so uh, these guys were putting their lives on the line for for this truth and uh And they also had a tremendous network of mercy ministries and hospitals for refugees. And uh, so literally, if you were a a Reformation Christian, you would be running, in some instances, for your life. And many people ran to Geneva. The English uh, reformers, under some of the uh, aggressive, under Bloody Mary, um, ran for their lives to Geneva. uh, And... uh, and there, they they got biblical theology and went back, and the English Reformation, which is the birthplace of Presbyterianism, um, came about. So, so question. yeah, yeah.
1: Was Geneva like sort of like the uh, theological center before Calvin, or did he was he the main was he the driving force? He kind of made
0: it that it kind of became kind of the streaming because um, you kind of followed the the teachers. He was trained in France in the uh, theological system there. And he wrote some uh, papers as a student. I mean, just think about if uh, if Wade's papers like started a whole Southern California riot.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> Make sure you don't, right? Yeah. But uh, that's basically what's happening is he's writing papers for people like to go and give speeches and stuff. And these kind of cause some stuff. So he was actually kind of on the run as a very young... Uh, theology student, so he was kind of an edgy guy. He he didn't mind pushing the envelope if Scripture uh, demanded it. And so, basically, Geneva started to get a name in terms of the quality of teaching and the purity of, of teaching. Yeah, good question. <clears throat> so this brings us kind of to his his magnum opus, if you want to call it that, it is called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's a monster book. It's two volumes in the modern edition. The old King James Version edition looks like a phone book. Uh, The one volume it's like that, that big. But what you find, actually, if you actually crack it, is some really warm devotional theology. People think of Calvin. You look at this picture, or some of his other ones, he looks pretty sour, kind of (laughs) like his cheeks are sunken in. He looks a little sick. And angry um, but as you open this up it's just dripping Jesus it's dripping uh, Bible it's just every other sentence is teasing out the beauty of what God is doing uh, in the scriptures and so this is his preface to uh, the 1545 edition of the Institute's um, anybody want to read this morning
1: Nathan
0: you, wait, do you want to? It's
1: a, oh, okay. you say, yeah. I may add that my object in this work was to prepare and train students of theology for the study of the sacred volume, mm-hmm. so that they might, might both have an easy introduction to it and be able to proceed in it with unfaltering steps, seeing I have endeavored to give such a summary of religion in all its parts and have digested it into such an order as may make it not difficult for anyone. Who is rightly acquainted with it, to ascertain both what he ought to principally look for in Scripture, and also what head he ought to refer to whatever is contained in it. Having thus, as it were, paved the way, I shall not feel it necessary, in any commentaries on Scripture which I may afterwards publish, to enter into long discussions of doctrine. In this way, the pious reader will be saved much trouble and weariness, provided he comes furnished with a knowledge of the present work as an, ex- as an essential prerequisite.
0: All right. So what is he saying he wants to do with his, this book? And the sacred volume, by the way, is the... Not his book. His, the Bible, right, yeah. <clears throat> so what, what does he want to prepare students for?
1: <clears throat> to make doctrine make sense. To, to make sense of the doctrine. So people are, you know, stumbling about. Okay, let's
0: define that word for a second. What does doctrine mean? It's a fancy word for teaching. So he's basically saying, I'm going to tell you what the Bible teaches so that you're ready for it when you read it. And he wants to bring a little bit of order to it so that he makes sure he's showing us the scope of what the Bible teaches and, and how it kind of breaks down the different divisions. Um, and so his, his, uh, um, his uh, Institutes talks about how do we receive the grace of Christ, and that falls under the category of church. So obviously for, for Catholic Christians, church is the main vehicle for grace to flow to us. But he's going to be saying the way that grace of Christ flows to us is through Christ. And so he wants to talk about how was Christ pictured in the Old Testament? How does Christ fulfill it in the New Testament? And then how does fake versions of this grace, i.e. either Roman Catholic or these crazy sect uh, kind of revolutionary radical reformers, basically asking... Did they get it right? Is this really what God had in mind? Really bringing it back to a biblical theology, really uh, filtering even current uh, conceptions of God and the church through Scripture. And so he's really interacting with all of these things, and he's deeply interacting with Jesus. So uh, this is something for us to think about. Because you might have heard of sola scriptura, right? Right? Is like we only use the Bible. 100% correct. But then you have to ask, like, does that mean I should never read a commentary? Does that mean I should never believe what my pastor or my teachers in the church tell me? Should I only get it just in my devotional study in my closet or with my Logos Bible software? Um, is that the only thing I should believe? And so basically what you see here is um, not really some safeguards, but basically how do we practically hold to a sola scriptura? We need to, uh, what he's doing is we we need to know what we're going to be looking at. And so sometimes we have to be asking... Here's your Harry Potter class. (laughs) Um, Everybody's coming at the Bible with a lens. There's no such person as a person that reads the Bible objectively, right? We just need to be a little more self-critical about the lens that we bring to the Bible. Some people say, I want a life verse. So they're like going through and they're like randomly, point, put their finger down. Here's my life verse. Um, but we need to be thinking about Scripture in terms of the story, the flow of what God's doing. So different words for that is covenant (coughs) theology. And so Calvin is one of the clearest and most helpful uh, people that shows how this is a story of God, uh, how he works out his love in history with his people, Israel and the church. Israel being the church in the Old Testament. That's what covenant theology is is saying. So he says he wants his students to be able to have kind of an initial... 10,000 feet survey of the Bible, but does he want them to just read his ordering of it? No. He's like, this is so that this becomes your book. I want you to read my book so that this becomes your book. You own it, you know it, and you start to see this is my story because this is my Jesus, and this is God's covenant with me. So one of the things that we see come out, even though he maybe wasn't a super warm dude, just because of how he was built or what he was struggling with, what comes across in his, uh, his writings is deeply personal. But how do we take the history of God with his people and read it as the history of God with me? And one of his key concepts is this next thing on point number two, is union with Christ, and here Calvin is, is remember I said, he's trying to stitch together the best of Christianity, tearing out the, the, the rotten parts. And so he uses um, the resources of early church theologians, um, like Athanasius, and then uh, some medieval guys, Bernard of Clairvaux, um, this notion of when Jesus saves us, it is not so much a... Uh, and we talk about this some in our theology, and it is true. We have to really ask ourselves, what do our primary metaphors do in our devotional life with God? Because we talk about imputation and transfer of righteousness. But sometimes that's a very bank, banking feel, um, that it's credits swapping uh, columns. Something that's deeply throughout scripture and what Calvin recovers uh, through uh, really good theology, Um, really tying off of uh, Athanasius' book on the incarnation. Really tiny book, super awesome book. Basically saying if God becomes man, what does that say about us? If God becomes man, what does that say about creation? If God becomes man, what does that say about his intention for us? And really, kind of the punchline Calvin takes away, as well as from uh, Bernard of Clairvaux's commentaries on Song of Solomon, is that, literally, he wants to marry us. He wants the two to become one. God's intention is not just to credit us some benefits of Jesus. He wants to give all of Jesus to us as a person. D.A. Carson talked about this at the uh, Acts 29 boot camp. Some of you guys were there. He would say... What's the difference between alimony and the provision of a husband? In both scenarios, there's a guy and there's money, right? In alimony, a guy doesn't live with you, he sends you money every month, (coughs) but there's a broken relationship. There's not the dwelling, there's not the provision, there's not the comfort, there's not the protection. He's like, we have to be really careful in some of our analogies that we don't just have an alimony relationship with Jesus, that he just sends us checks. He's like, what we have is actually a loving husband who takes all of our junk and all of our past, and he makes a home with us and for us. He becomes one with us. And that's really the message of the gospel, is that we are united with Christ. That's in Romans 6, where he says, since you've been united with Christ walk in newness of life. Basically, you know, there's a ring on your finger. Your situation is totally different because you are now one with this Jesus. And He has become one with us in the Incarnation. And we have become one with Him in His crucifixion and resurrection and by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this language. He says, Christ's task was to restore us to God's grace as to make of the children of men children of God, of the heirs of hell, heirs of the heavenly kingdom. Who could have done this had not the selfsame Son of God become the Son of Man and had not so taken what was ours to impart what was His to us and to make what was His by nature ours by grace? So he's not just saying His benefits or His power or his, His goodies, but really Him, you know, having Him. And that's something we always wrestle with is... Do I want God for His benefits or do I want Him? Do I actually just want Him? And that's, I think he gets at the heart of the struggle is how to think about God, not just forgiving our sins, but taking up all of our our whole life, swallowing up our life into His. This last, in the second paragraph, Our common nature with Christ is the pledge of our fellowship with the Son of God and clothed with our flesh he vanquished death and sin together that the victory and triumph might be ours. <clears throat> so if we say there's any kind of genius of Calvin is his pressing the uh, union of the Christian with, with Jesus. And uh, that has some really deep implications for how um, this next part, how we view, view the law... And this is something God's been teaching me recently, is I'm a good Calvinist, and in some ways that messes me up. Because we can have this conception of God as absolutely sovereign, but that makes him just universe dictator, right? He's into the big stuff, making sure things don't collide and the right king gets in the right throne, and that I don't get sick or that I get what I need. But it's all, God's up here, I'm down here. But if we think about things in terms of union with Christ, is Christ is in the muck with me? He has descended into my story, and He loves me, and so He is bound to me. And so, if we find ourselves being prayerless, I was kind of I was working in the garden, and I was thinking, God, I've sort of been waiting for You to act in history to tell me what You want or or how You think about me. Are You going to make this? plan, succeed, or fail, I was kind of saying, well, I'll know when stuff happens in my life instead of deeply knowing that he's my father and he cares for me. These are two different pictures of God. He's not just an absolute monarch. He's an absolutely good father. And so I have not been reaching out to him in his nearness. I've just been thinking about him in this kind of conceptual way. Does that kind of make sense? And Calvin wants us to bring it down, because Jesus brings it down. Jesus is working the whole plan, but he works it out in relationship. He's working it out on the ground with real people to whom, in this analogy, he is married to. And so we're, we think God's married to a planet. No, he's married to a people. And so sometimes we lose that deeply personal part of what God is, is up to.
1: So when he was writing this stuff, was it in reaction to maybe like the sterile, cold religion that he saw, or was it, and was it like pervasive that people just saw religion as merely an intellectual thing?
0: Yeah, I think that's our big temptation. I think it probably surprised him as much as anybody. But since he was deeply embedded in the story of covenant and and, and of the scriptures, that's why we always have to kind of fight this tendency. And I, I've tried to kind of figure out how to balance this. I've made this. This is kind of nerdy, but <clears throat> we have systematic theology, we have biblical theology, we have practical theology, and there's one other one. Oh, and conf- we can call it confessional theology. <clears throat> Some of us love this. Like we like reading Wayne Grudem for devotions or stuff. Although he has like hymns and devotionals in the theology book. But if these two aren't talking to each other, systematic theology and biblical theology, see, because this is a story, and this reads kind of like an encyclopedia. So if we're kind of thinking God about under topics like sovereignty, justification, sanctification, election, blah, 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 we're getting things accurate, Mm But it's not, God wrote the Bible not as an encyclopedia or a systematic theology. He wrote it as a story. And one of the things I think Calvin captures is, how do we do systematic theology as a story of God's covenant? So he's always bouncing back and forth. Some of our favorite theologians do this really well, but they don't know how to flesh it out as a story. So basically, the Bible is a story that gives us a theology. It's harder to take our systematic theology and rewrite it into a kind of a human story where we can kind of grasp it. So I think what he did really well is that this is how we live it as a faith walk every day. So he takes really awesome concepts, obviously. He's one of the most profound guys on election. But he tells it like the story of how does God's grace come to us Uh, like that. Does that kind of make sense? So it, it becomes less abstract. It becomes more concrete. And uh, that's our struggle, is our life is very concrete and our theology is very abstract. How do we bring those two together? And that's hard to do. Kind of the next little category here is just uh, his work on the law is really balanced. He doesn't just pit law versus grace, but because he's treating it in terms of the biblical theology story, you say this is promise, Old Testament is promise the promise of salvation and the new testament is the fulfillment of salvation so he's not pitting old and new testament against each other or law versus gospel so he says here in the precepts of the law god is but the rewarder of perfect righteousness which all of us lack and conversely the severe judge of evil deeds so is that if we just focused on the purity of the law and how exalted it is we'd be depressed because we don't keep it He says there's other uses of the law that says when we realize that we are accepted before God, we want to live acceptably. It gives us some positive structure to our obedience. So we don't have to guess. What does God want? Well, it says, well, what did he say? I want you to be and do. It says, but in Christ his face shines full of grace and gentleness, even upon us poor and unworthy sinners. And so he taught three uses of the law. One was to condemn us so that we're ready for Jesus. Um, the other is to show us what righteousness is. and I'm forgetting the third one. But yeah, it's a balanced view there. Let's go on to this last this last one. <clears throat> this is kind of my favorite part of Calvin as he takes really mystical stuff and makes it really... Uh, practical. So just like systematic theology can be very, um, just these categories, one, two, three. <clears throat> Sometimes our, our, uh, our view of coming to the Lord's table is like this, is I have to have a right intellectual understanding that this isn't Jesus' actual body. I'm not chewing Jesus. So we're trying to think, this isn't the Catholic view. This isn't the Lutheran view. This is the Reformed view. So we're trying to say, okay, am I thinking about it right? And then, is my heart ready? Am I hating sin enough? And so, literally in some churches, the only people that take communion are the elders. Because they're the only ones that understand it enough, think that they've repented enough, and, you know, have all their stuff together, right? And everybody else is saying, "I'm not there yet." Like the bread's coming. Oh, oh no! I, haven't, I don't think I've repented enough, and so they they let the bread go because they're just like, "You just can't be repented enough," you know. So some people never come because they have this kind of like, it's kind of like rubbing your tummy pat in your head at the same time. It's like, and so sometimes that can work us into kind of a bad spot because we say it's about having the right, you know, approach to it. And Calvin does this really great kind of correction to that. Because he says, if communion is union with Jesus by faith through the bread, we're never going to be right enough. We're never going to be repented enough. We're never going to be all intellectually synced up enough. How about we just come and take him at his word by simple faith? Of what does the bread say to us? And, and he kind of teases out some stuff from 1 Corinthians. It says, For the Lord there communicates his body so that he may become altogether one with us and we with him. Moreover, since he has only one body of which he makes us all to be partakers, we must necessarily by this participation all become one body. But you're like, whoa, dude, that's deep. What are you talking about? <coughs> Well, when we say communion, he says, this is my body. What's he saying? This bread is my arms and my legs. Break one off and eat it. He's actually saying something to his body, the church. Remember we've been talking about Calvin loves this marriage language? It's like communion is the body coming together, all the parts coming together, becoming one. There's Jesus and his church. What do we do when we come to church? We all come in our little cars to church. And then we all sit in our little chairs in church. And we all have our little concerns while we're sitting in church. But what does Jesus say? He says, I meet you at the table. Come and bring your little stories and your little worries and your little struggles. And come and be one body with me. Even the word communion is saying that. Come together. But it also means don't be hating on each other. You're just down, quote unquote, if we think about it, this as grace download. If you're downloading grace so that you're all tight with Jesus, how tight are you with Jesus' brothers? Oh yeah. Kind of forgot that part. I was so busy getting my heart right and uh, my theology right. again in to church on time and You know, no donut on my shirt. You know, it's just like, he's like, let's get over that. Let's get over all this stuff and start to see what Jesus is about. Jesus wants to be one with us. So it's like we're on a date with Jesus and we're all worried about what our hair looks like and stuff. And he's like, I'm awesome and I love you. Grab that. Grab that with all the other Christians in the room. Grab hold of that and let that make your head explode, your heart explode. Let your heart be warm and loved and start to act loving to one another. So he's like, there's nothing more mystical, but also nothing more practical than communion. He actually wanted it practiced every week, but his elders only let him have it four times a year. (coughs) So there's a lesson for you. (laughs) Somebody who taught something had a deep biblical conviction about something. He knew how to not, quote unquote, get his way in a gracious way. Maybe he was a jerk about it but you know we don't know (laughs) short answer was he didn't get what he wanted and he thought he had really good biblical and theological uh reasons for that but you hear just how warm this is how loving how christ-centered how practical this was it's about love and this is a message to me as someone who wrestles with relationships and and being gentle Where sometimes i'm just thinking all the time and trying to get everything squared away is we can have really awesome warm theology that needs to spill out in a really awesome and warm Christian relationship. Um, so we don't have to sacrifice precision for love. We, we can have both. And maybe Calvin didn't, he died too early, maybe we could say. <laughs> so God kind of made those things come together for him. But that maybe our prayer can be that, is that uh, those things come together for us. This warmth that we get when we're thinking about Jesus and, and the Lord's table. That can kind of spill over in, man. This is about being one with each other and experiencing the joy, uh, the joy of that. Any questions or or comments? <clears throat> so, who was
1: like John Calvin's up, up, opposers? Or, who yeah,
0: they were usually the Socinians, which were these kind of arch-heretics kind of thing. Then there were a few cardinals who were kind of making his life miserable. So he would write back and forth. What well, was interesting, the preface of his uh, institutes was written to King Francis of France. So he says, We love you, King. We're glad that God's given you to us. We just want you to know what's up in your kingdom. We're quote unquote these troublemakers. We want you to know the biblical gospel that we're proclaiming. And so he was literally writing to his king this is what we're teaching, and I hope you'll see it's totally legit because it's just totally Bible. And he's just basically saying, oh, King, I wish the best for you. I wish you to have the joy that we have in Christ. So it's really just kind of, you know, warm and inviting the King into
1: So you didn't really find opposition against, like, the Catholic Church as much? Not directly, no.
0: in terms of the way Luther did. Mm-hmm. Luther was just kind of like the battering ram, just like, <laughs> I'm going in hot, you know, just coming in. Uh, he was just barging through. He didn't really care. And, uh, so kind of second-generation reformers are being more reflective. There's, there's some general safety. They're not running the first, you know, onslaught in the war. They're able to kind of be more strategic and more reflective. And you see that especially in, uh, like, the Heidelberg... Catechism with some of those guys, really just warm theology because they're not fighting for their lives; they're not trying to avoid being killed. They're just loving their people with the gospel. So you kind of have that feel with Calvin. Is he wants us to just get it right and, and really grasp uh, the glory of Christ that way. So, so that's why. Um, so if you kind of want to cut your teeth on some Calvin, this is kind of a good place to do it. A little tiny book called the Golden Book of the True Christian Life. So this is from uh, part of the Institutes on the Christian life, about <coughs> prayer, self-denial, how do you fight worldliness, stuff like that. So he talks a lot about the cross in the Christian life. So before C.J. Mahaney, there was Calvin. So uh, just a What's the name. What's the name? Yeah. Golden booklet of the true Christian life. So it's almost like a little, you know, little Proverbs or something. So yeah, it's good, good stuff. So... <clears throat> so don't be afraid of Calvin. Read him. It's not just for the advanced dudes or dudettes. So uh, it's for people who love the Bible, and want to love Jesus. So uh, I'm glad I can recommend our brother John to you guys. So I love Jesus. I appreciate Calvin. So let's let's keep it in that. Uh, in that order. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that uh, the warmth and the joy that we get from your uh, gospel, uh, that it would just permeate our lives, that it would unfreeze parts of us uh, that have yet to be warmed by the gospel. And so we thank you for John Calvin, how he pushes us in those directions. Help us to be sharp-minded, but warm-hearted. Help
1: us to be that kind of uh, Christian. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. amen.